came across an article this past week that was written a few weeks, a few years back. Um, it, it was on a website called Psychology Today, and the title of the article caught my attention. Here, here's what it said. How many decisions do we make each day? How many decisions do we make each day? Now, that intrigued me, and so I decided to read the article, and here's a quote from that article. Some resources suggest that the average person makes an eye-popping 35,000 choices per day, assuming most people spend around seven hours per day sleeping and thus blissfully choice-free. That makes roughly 2,000 decisions per hour, or one decision every two seconds. Now, for me, that's kind of a hard thing to believe. This article uh, actually thought so as well. The article went on to question the plausibility of that statistic. But here's the reality. From the moment that you and I open our eyes every day, our lives are filled with choices and decisions. And let's just say that the statistics are off by, uh, let's say, more than 90%, then there's still about a few thousand choices every day that every one of us is going to make. Some of those things are obviously not all that significant. Others make a very real impact on our lives. John Maxwell is a leadership guru. read a quote from him recently that went like this. Life is a matter of choices, and every choice you make makes you. Every choice you make makes you. And so I want to ask you this question as we begin today. How do you make decisions? How do you make choices? And I'm not talking about the small, insignificant choices that we uh, make every day, like uh, what we're going to wear or maybe what it is that we're going to eat today, or even like the choice that many of us make about whether we are going to be a Michigan fan or an Illinois fan or an Ohio State fan. Now, those are really uh, kind of insignificant choices in the grand scheme of things, although if you're anything other than an Ohio State fan, then you're just wrong, amen? Amen. But I'm talking about the significant life choices that affect our lives. How do you make those decisions? How do you make those choices? I spent some time this week thinking about that question. How do people make decisions in their life? And I actually um, asked a few people this question as well. I, I wrote some of these things down. And I want you to see if any of these things resonate with you and how you make decisions. First, some people make decisions with a pros and cons list. You know what that looks like, that you go get a piece of paper, you put a line down the middle of the paper, and then you put pros on one side and cons on the other side, and you start making lists of pros and cons. And if the pros outweigh the cons, then you have your decision. Other people make decisions based on what I call an opinion poll. They go around to all of their friends, all of the people who know them best, and they ask what decision they should make. And whatever the majority vote is, that's what they do. Some people make decisions based on what makes me happy. Here is what I'm going to do. Whichever thing is going to make me the most happy, that's the decision I'm going to make. Other people say, well... It just felt right to me. You ask them, 
how did you make that decision? And they say, well, it just felt like the right thing to do in that moment. And a lot of people just feel their way through life making decisions. A lot of Christians use this one, the old open door philosophy. How did you make that decision? Well, it was just an open door. And if the door is open, then I'm just going to have to step through it, not thinking about who it was that opened that door. Some Christians make decisions with logic. I I used my mind. And whatever decision makes the most sense to me, that's what it is that I will do. And then, if all else fails, we always have that trusty quarter that's available somewhere deep in our pocket, right? And so, I've got a decision that I need to make. If it's heads, it's going to be this. If it's tails, it's going to be this. And what's it going to be? Well, tails never fails, right? And I wonder... What do the, what do the, how do you make decisions? How do you go about making these significant life choices? You know, last week we looked at the definition of the word acceptable. And I said that the word acceptable is defined as saying, as something that is considered by most people to be reasonable or something that can be allowed. And here is the reality. Many of the things that I described have become acceptable ways of making decisions for Christians. That that we make lists of pros and cons, or we do what feels right, or whatever our friends say, or whatever door is open, that's what we're going to go through. But here's the question that I really want us to wrestle with this morning. Does it really matter to God how we make decisions in life. I mean, as long as we make a decision and then ask God to bless it, does it really matter how that decision is made? Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to join me in the New Testament book of James. James chapter 4. And as we continue our study today in this letter that's been written by the half-brother of Jesus, we're going to see that James is dealing with this idea of how we make decisions. We're in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. We're going to put these words up on the screen. But I want you to follow along as I read this. It says, Come now. Now, before we just move on and read on from that phrase, come now, you just need to know that this is literally like James kind of grabbing a hold of both sides of our faces, pulling us in close and saying, hey, listen to me. It's James' way of making us lean in and pay attention to what he's about to say, meaning that what he's about to say is really, really important. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's a pretty strong word, right? That word evil that James uses here is a word that means morally bad. It's a word that means wrong. One Greek scholar says that it means to be actively evil, meaning that when we live in disregard to the decisions that we make in our lives, the Bible says that's 
evil in action. This word evil is a word that's used as the very name of Satan himself. In fact, three different times in the New Testament, Satan is called the evil one. And this is the very same word. And so what James is describing right here is not just something that is not the best idea for us. He's describing a lifestyle practice that God calls evil and is more in line with who Satan is than with who Jesus is. told you last week that James was going to get in our business a little bit over the, the next few weeks as we're in this section that we're calling acceptable sins. Things that the Bible calls evil, that the Bible calls sin, but that many Christians have begun to consider these things as being okay. Last week, we talked about speaking evil against one another. How that's just because, just because it's become a common thing in the Christian culture today, particularly on social media, to just walk around and talk about brothers and sisters in Christ. But James says that that's never, ever, ever an acceptable thing to do, that for you and I to do something talking evil against another brother or sister in Christ. Here, James begins to deal with another acceptable sin. You say, well, what is it? It's the sin of presumption. And what is that? Well, let me just give you a definition that we're going to put up on the screen here. The sin of presumption is... Making life choices apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God. Let me say that again. It's making life choices apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God. And James says that is evil. When you and I treat the decisions in our lives as if God doesn't exist, there is something terribly wrong with that. James writes about these people in this text, and I love how he describes what they say. They say, we will, we will go, and we will spend time, and we will trade, and we will make a profit. He's talking to believers here about a cavalier attitude of making decisions without seeking and submitting to the will of God. These people are presuming on the when, today or tomorrow. They are presuming on the where, to such and such a town. They're presuming on the what, I'm going to do my business. They're presuming on the why, I'm going to make a profit. They were making major life choices as if God didn't even exist. And they expect that God's obligated to bless, protect, provide, and supply all along the way. And listen, this isn't just a problem that was happening in James' day. I've been a pastor for over 21 years. And I would say that most of the times when people want to meet with me, when they want some advice, they want some input on a particular situation that has been really messed up in their lives, it's almost always a result of making decisions without seeking and submitting to the will of God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, you know, I didn't really seek God before I made this decision, but here I am. Now what am I supposed to do? And this is exactly what James is addressing here in this passage. Here's what I want you to understand. When you make decisions about your finances, your relationships, your job, your career, your home, your family, your health, and you don't seek and submit to the will of God, you are living in a way that is contrary to the very life of Jesus. You say, well, 
What, is that? what do you mean by that? Well, as Christians, we want our lives to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Our lives are to be conformed into the image of Christ. And when Jesus lived his life here on this earth, the consuming passion of his life was constantly doing the will of the Father. Let me just quickly show you this in three verses. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. Listen, Jesus the sinless son of God who came in the flesh, he, he needed to say, I can do nothing on my own. If he could say that, then you and I, I mean, we need to approach our, our uh, decisions in life in the same way. The choices that we make, we need to approach them by saying, I can't do it on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Thirdly, here John three or John six and verse thirty-eight. Listen to what Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What's the point? Making significant life decisions without seeking and submitting to the will of God is the very opposite of Christ's likeness in the life of a Jesus follower. And yet, I see Christians all the time who say things like, well, you know what, it's not really a spiritual decision, and so it doesn't really matter. I mean, if it was something like going to church or my quiet time, then I would pray about it, but this is business, or this is about my relationships, or this is about my family, or this has to do with my free time. And they make decisions without seeking and submitting to the will of God. James says that is a very dangerous way to live your life. You say, why is it so dangerous? Well, I want to talk to you today just about why is presuming on God so dangerous. James actually gives us four reasons that I want us to look at here. First, it's dangerous because our perspective is limited. When we make decisions apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God, we need to understand that our perspective is limited. Listen to what James says here in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. That word know is a word that means to know by experience, to know by acquiring information. I love the way that the Amplified Bible translates this. The Amplified Bible says, yet you do not know the least thing about what's going to happen tomorrow. Life is uncertain. There are things that are happening today that you did not plan on. There are things that will happen tomorrow that you didn't have on your agenda. There are things that will happen this week that did not that you did not see coming. Life is uncertain, and when you make life decisions without seeking God's will, you are choosing to make decisions that could change your life and the life of those that you love without All of the information. Here's the bottom line. You and I don't know what we don't know. Now, that's going to hit you later on and you're going to say, oh, that's good. Yeah. We don't know what we don't know. This has been very real in my life many times. But on a particular occasion, uh, 15 years ago, this is what happened. 
It was 2006, 2007. Back then, the housing market was just booming. And people were buying up properties. They were rehabbing them, flipping these houses for incredible profits. And at times, even doubling the value of the house. Well, I remember having a few friends who bought houses during those times. And they were just talking about how great the market was. How buying a house was a can't-miss investment. If you didn't buy a house, it was like you were wasting your money and you were never going to have the ability to own anything. You know, you'd be stupid not to buy. Well, there, there was so much talk about this that I started thinking to myself, you know what, I, I don't really need a house. I have a place to live, but this could be a good investment. I could go with somebody else, uh, go in with somebody else on this. We could rehab this together. We could flip it. We could make some money. After all, I mean, this sounds like a no-brainer here. And so I, I started looking around at different houses in the area. I started talking to um, realtors. I started talking to uh, people um, who would be interested in going in on our property together. And I, I said, though, you know, listen, I'm not going to do anything unless I am sure that this is what God wants me to do first. And so I laid it before the Lord and I tried to discern, um, listen, God, is this what you want me to do in this situation? Well, all the logical things just seem to say you need to buy a house right now. And if you don't buy a house right now, you're never going to get one. But you see, there were some things that we did not know back then in 2007. And I ended up just kind of not getting any confirmation from God about what he wanted me to do on this. And so I kind of let it go. I put it on the back burner a little bit. Well, in 2008, 2009, the housing market crashed. And people who had bought these houses were now going into foreclosure because they were too expensive and they couldn't afford them. But the point is this, we don't know what we don't know. You see, sometimes there is information that we don't have access to. All of the pros said buy a house. All of the logic said buy a house. All the feelings said buy a house. The heart said I want a house. Everything said yes, 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 yes. But as I sought the Lord, he led me in a different direction. You see, our perspective is always limited. Whatever decision you're about to make, there are some things on the other side of that that you just cannot see. But here's what you need to know. God's perspective is unlimited. And not only is his perspective unlimited, but he is in absolute control. Look at what it says in Job chapter 28 and verse 24. For he, God, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Friends, there is nothing that escapes the wisdom and knowledge, the power and the control of God. And so, don't, doesn't it just make sense that if you and I have access to the one who has perspective that is unlimited and he is sovereign over everything, shouldn't we ask him about the decisions that we're about to make? James says that our perspective is limited, but secondly, he says that our flesh is deceitful. Our flesh is deceitful. In the text here, James says, gives this quote about these people who, who say, you know what, we're going to go and we're going to make a profit. And, and these people are, are just consumed with this lust for more. And I wonder, how many times do we make decisions because we want more? Now, it's not wrong to have more, no, um, if the Lord wills it. 
But here's what the Bible says very clearly, that you and I are to be content with whatever we have. If God, in his sovereignty, as a part of his plan and purpose, chooses to allow you to have more, then to God be the glory. But that is not always God's plan for our lives. This drive to have more, it's very much an American value. But, but this consuming desire, it's kind of like this cup right here. This cup, it, it looks great from a distance. It looks great on the outside. But there is a hole in the bottom of this cup. It, it, it's not going to hold very much if you put something into this cup. That's what life is like a lot of times. That, that the more we want, we want more. But then the more we get, the more just the, it just leaks out. And there's never enough. Friends, we, we just need to know that the flesh is deceitful. In fact, Jeremiah chapter uh, 17 and verse 9, it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen, our hearts will lie to us. And a lot of times we think, wow, I mean, this is going to make me happy. But guess what? There is a hole in the bottom of that cup, and it won't last, it won't fulfill, it won't satisfy. Friends, when the, decisions, the, the decision that's being made is what feels right, it can often lead to regret. But listen, regret can be avoided by seeking and submitting to the will of God. Third reason why it's dangerous to presume on God is because our time is short. Our time is short. Verse 14 again says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That word mist is a word that means vapor. And it's like when you have a kettle or a pot on the stove and there's steam that's rising up into the air. It's there for a moment, but then it's gone. And, or it's like the, the breath that you take on a cold morning. You walk outside, you breathe, and you see it. There it is, but only for a moment, and then it's gone. James says, listen, if... We look at everything in light of eternity. Our lives are like a mist that are here for only a short time and then it's gone. You see, we often make plans as if time is unlimited, thinking that we are in control of how much time we have. But James says that our time is short. It is limited. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, since life is so brief, we cannot afford merely to spend our time, and we certainly do not want to waste our lives, but we must invest our lives in those things that are eternal. Our time is short. Fourth reason why it's so dangerous to presume on God is that our enemy is a liar. Our enemy is a liar. Look at verse 15. James says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, do, we will live and do this or that. You know, a lot of times we hear that phrase, God's will, and we buy into the lie of the enemy that says, oh, God is just going to rob you of your joy. God's going to rob you of all of your freedom in life. 
And so we start thinking, yeah, you know what? I really want to do this particular thing, but I guess I got to do the will of God. That we think that the will of God is kind of like eating our vegetables. You know what? I really don't like to do it, but I guess it's good for me. For me, that's kind of like broccoli. You know what? I know that it's good for me, but I don't really like it. And for all of you who are broccoli fans, my apologies. I'm just not a big fan of it. It looks like a tree on my plate, and I shouldn't have to eat that. There isn't enough ranch dip on planet Earth to drown that, that taste out and to make it taste good to me. I just don't like it. But that's the way that a lot of people feel when they think about the will of God. And the reason is, is because they bought into the lie of the enemy. The enemy says, well... It's just like broccoli. It's good for you, but you're going to hate it. So I guess I have to do the will of God. But I want you to listen to what Jesus said about the devil. John chapter 8 and verse 44. He said, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's what the Bible says about the will of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, the enemy says that the will of God is going to rob you, that it's going to make you sad, that it's going to make you sacrifice, bring you down. But the Bible says that God's will is the best. That God's will is, is going to satisfy you and give you pleasure. That, that it will leave you wanting nothing. And that's why James says, friends, it is dangerous to presume on God and not seek and submit to his will. So, if it's so dangerous to presume on God, then what's the alternative to presuming on God? We said it at the beginning that the uh, sin of presumption is making life choices apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God. So here is the alternative. I want to give this to you. The alternative, making life choices through seeking and submitting to the will of God. Here's what I want you to know. God loves you and he has a glorious plan for your life. Let me say that again. God loves you very personally, and he has a glorious plan for your life. But friends, we, we need to note this. He will not force his plan on us. We are not his robots. We are in a relationship with him. And as his followers, he has a plan for us, but he will graciously allow us to choose to do our own thing. And when we do, we miss out on God's glorious design. There are two aspects of this alternative to, that we've got to seek and submit to the will of God. First, uh, I want to look at this idea of submitting to the will of God. Look at what James says again in verse 15. If the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or that. This is a big contrast between this and the quote that he gives at the beginning of those people who are saying, we're going to go tomorrow, today or tomorrow. We're going to stay a year. We're going to do some work. We're going to make a profit. But James says, here is what you need to know. If the Lord wills, then we will. 
You see, this phrase speaks to the posture of the heart that is surrendered to the will of God, no matter what the situation might be. And that was the heart of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus and what he said in the Gospels, particularly in the garden, uh, just when the crucifixion was just around the corner? You, you remember what he said there in uh, particularly Mark chapter 14. Listen to this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Can you say that? In that job change that you're thinking about, are you ready to say, God, not what I will, but what you will? In that relationship, that family decision, that relocation decision, that selling of the house decision, whatever it might be, have you reached the posture in your heart like Jesus where you say, God, here's what I want. But God, not what I want, but what you want. Because the reality is, is that my perspective is limited. And my flesh will lie to me. And the enemy will lie to me. And I know that my time here on earth is very short. And so God, not what I want, but what you want. Friends, one thing that we need to know is that Jesus is Lord. In fact, if you believe that here this morning, would you just slip your hand up? Jesus is Lord. Amen? Now, you know I'm setting you up here, right? Lord means boss. Lord means the one who is in charge. And so, if we are going to know the will of God, if we are going to experience God's best, then it begins with a heart that is submitted to his will. And listen, I know that this is not easy. But when you understand what you're laying down in order to pick up what is best... It's so worth it. Submitting to God's will. Know in this room that there are some who are facing some big decisions. Some life-altering choices. Are you ready to say, God, here's my request. But Lord, I submit not to my will, but to your will. Here's the second part of this alternative. We seek the will of God. Seek the will of God. I love the way that it says this in verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, where submission is about the heart, seeking is about hearing. And here's what that means. The opposite of presuming on God is depending on God. You see, when I make decisions apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God, I'm presuming on God. But... When I am making a decision by seeking and submitting to the will of God, then I am depending on him, which is faith. Love this verse in Romans chapter 10 that describes what it means to hear God by faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Here's what that means. If you haven't heard from God, then that's not faith. You know, I hear people all the time say, well, I'm really not sure what God wants me to do, and so I guess I'm just going to have to step out in faith. Well, that's not faith. That's presuming on God, and it is a dangerous way to live your life and a dangerous way to lead your family. Faith comes from hearing. Friends, we need to hear from God, which means intimacy with God. It demands a relationship 
And if I am going to hear from God, then I, I, I've got to submit to his will and I've got to uh, intimately pursue after him. And as I'm intimately pursuing him, God makes himself known through the vehicle of the relationship. And so as we, pres- uh, as we pursue after God, he makes his will known to our lives, which means that if we are lacking a clarity in a particular issue of our lives, then that is just an invitation for a deeper uh, pursuit of God, a deeper intimacy with God. Henry Blackaby said it this way in his study, Experiencing God, he said, If you do not have clear instructions from God in a matter, pray and wait. Learn patience. Depend on God's timing. His timing is always right and best. Don't get in a hurry. He may be withholding directions to cause you to seek him more intimately. Don't try to skip out, skip over the relationship to get to the doing. God is more interested in a love relationship with you than he is with what you can do for him. So listen, in order to know the will of God, We need to be seeking and submitting ourselves to Him. There's no magic formula here. We're just needing to be in the Word of God, drawing close to Him, and to be in fellowship with other godly people. And as we do that, He makes His will known to us, and He gives us direction, the direction that we need. I want to close with a story from my own life here. It was the spring of 1995. As a regular habit, I I was just trying to read through the Bible one day, just happened to be reading Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Started to pray in that moment. I felt that the Lord was just telling me that he wanted me to go, and he wanted me to be a pastor somewhere. Now, you have to understand that I grew up in a small town in Ohio, a farming community. I grew up on a farm myself. All I ever wanted to do was to farm. Well, about three months later, in the summer of 1995, I went to a youth conference in Florida with my church and about 7,000 other people. One night, one of the speakers there was talking about this verse in Matthew chapter 9. It came up again. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And again, I felt this tug in my spirit that said, hey, Jason, I'm talking to you. Now, I guess I'm a a, a bit of a a difficult case. I don't pick things up very quickly. But later on in that year, it, it was the fall of 95. I'm sitting down with a mentor of mine. Mark Karstensen, and he said to me, Jason, I've been praying for you, and God has just kind of put it on my heart that uh, you're going to be a pastor one day. And in that moment, I just said, okay, God, I mean, this is no coincidence. Clearly, you are trying to get my attention. And in this moment, I just need to say yes to you. I willingly, I'm willing to go wherever it is that you want me to go. Well, fast forward a few years, go to Bible college, go to Indiana Grace College, get a degree in pastoral ministries. I get married. Sue and I move to Chicago. I start going to Moody Bible Institute. I get a master's degree in ministry. 
All of my plans were, hey, um, we're going to come to Chicago for a short period of time. I'm going to get my degree, and then we're going to move probably back to Ohio. I mean, you, you have to understand that where I grew up, no one drives through Chicago, let alone lives and moves to Chicago. The news is always bad. I mean, nothing good ever happens in Chicago. And guess what? I mean, you're going to try to raise a family in Chicago? You've got to be crazy. Well, so about two months after we moved to Chicago, a good friend of mine, some of you know him, Zach Struther, said to me, listen, there is a small church on the south side, St. Paul's Bible Church is its name, looking for a youth pastor and uh, just get the sense that the Lord has you as the guy for the job. He says, you know what, I, I, I told the pastor about you. He said, um, I, 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 he says this to me and I say, well, I'm not really planning on staying in Chicago for very long. And St. Paul's Bible Church, I mean, what kind of a church is that? I mean, all the pros and the cons sheet, it, it didn't add up. Chicago was not on my radar to stay. And at the time, St. Paul's had like 30 people coming here. It didn't really seem that it was going to work out. It didn't really seem like it would make a whole lot of sense to go. It didn't seem like it was really an open door. Sue and I just kind of laid it before the Lord. And as we prayed, we remembered the things that God said in his word about going. And as we sought counsel from other godly people... It, it just got this incredible sense of peace in our lives that the Lord was saying that he wanted us to do this. And listen, that decision that was made over 20 years ago, a decision that we thought was maybe the riskiest, most crazy, radical decision of our lives, turned out to be the most amazing faith journey in our family's life. I tell you all of this to say this. I am not trying to sell you something. I'm not up here as a paid salesman. I am here as a satisfied customer. I am someone who said yes. 20 years later, I am telling you that it is not broccoli, but it's T-bone steak. It's the best of the best. Friends, God's will is the best. Now listen, I'm not always perfect in this. I, I, I get it wrong a lot of times. I'm not always right. But what I'm saying is this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He just calls you to seek and to submit to him.